Bastro Bob, you must have been out in a log cabin somewhere with no electricity, no indoor plumbing, no TV or no newspaper if you don't know what Hulkamania is all about. But to answer your question, the first thing it's about is getting your act together, brother. Getting this skinny little bow tie off, getting these little chicken wings in shape. Before we go any further, I'd just like to say publicly, this is the single proudest moment of my life. Welcome to Great Minds, and our guest today, and it's an absolute privilege, is the voice of my generation in sports and in popular culture, Bob Costas. Thanks for being here, Bob. Well, it's a very fine introduction, and I hope I can come close to living up to it. You set the bar high. I hope I've still got enough of a fastball to get there. I think you do, and I'm sure for you, this is, uh, I was thinking this must be a little bit of an Admiral Stockdale moment being on great minds you recall his great line who am i and why am i here way back when. well well i'm not confused as to who i am uh, Scottdale <laughs> seemed to be totally confused as to time place and identity i'm not confused in that respect and i'm happy to be here in any case i'm not sure that stockdale before the debate and then after was at all happy to have been there i, I think you're right when we think of sports Sports is something that conjures memories, emotions, and it's also something that we define by numbers. If we're in your beloved adopted town of St. Louis and you say number six, you know it's Stan Musial. When you're talking about another player who I know you love, Mickey Mantle, it's number seven. And there are also names that when you say the greatest of all time, of course, it's Muhammad Ali. When you say the great one, it's Jackie Gleason. And when you say 39, it's the classic 39 and the original Honeymooners. Yep, number and, of episodes. And I watched your conversation with Audrey Meadows, and I thought it was one of the best things I had ever seen anybody do in any genre. Thanks for staying up later. If I walk out of here tomorrow and they say there's no more show, and in fact, there's no more career, if I've got to go work at a 7-Eleven starting tomorrow, it's okay. Because Audrey Meadows, Alice Cramden, is our guest tonight on Later. And away we go. How'd you get to become Alice? Oh, what a beautiful introduction. You have to stay on for 100 years because you are the best. Well, I don't know, but The Honeymooners is my favorite television show of all time. And I'm sure I'm not alone in that. It's not exactly like, a, like an esoteric choice. And millions right. of people can make that same statement. Yeah. And the same 39, over and over... I mean, you'd get tired no matter how good a show. I, you'd get tired of them three, four times. I've seen all of them 15 times. Oh. And I'll go for 16. I'll go for 18. <laughs> I never tire of them. And, and other people feel the same way. So it's, it's obviously a classic show. Yeah. Well, of course, the 39 are the only ones that I have seen until the Lost episodes were discovered. Well, that's awfully nice. Um, one of the things about Later was that it was a single guest program a very textured and eclectic guest list over the five or six years that we did the show. There was no studio audience, although sometimes you'd get a laugh or some kind of reaction from the people on the set, the stage manager, the camera people, something like that. And it's an old axiom of show business. If you earn a laugh from the crew, that's a much higher achievement than getting one from a studio audience who comes primed to laugh. 
So it had a certain atmosphere to it. It was unrushed. It was generally speaking, there were a few guests that we had to have just to plug a gap in the schedule because you had to have a show four nights a week. But 90% of the programs were about the person's body of work and their life story and their point of view. It wasn't about having something to sell or having to achieve a laugh every 20 seconds, lest the audience's attention span be exhausted. It, I wouldn't call it highbrow. I'd call it perhaps upper middle brow. But at that level, we respected the audience's intelligence, and we assumed that a certain sensibility prevailed among that audience. And that's, that's what we pitched our content toward. And it, was also, it also had to interest me. Otherwise, the program wouldn't have worked. And uh, I think I would lose, but I, I would relish the challenge to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with you on Honeymooners Trivia. The way you pulled out references in your conversation with her, you know, Bert Wiedemeyer, on and on and on. It, it was impressive, Bob. Well, some of what we were able to accomplish on later was the result of diligent research. And our staff was very, very good. And I made sure to be well prepared. And that's a carryover from sports broadcasting. Any good sports broadcaster will tell you that preparation is absolutely key. And you prepare for eventualities that are not likely, but they could come up. And you never know what you'll use from that preparation, what will fit. But you need more than you intend to use because you can't be sure. A sports event is a drama without a script. So you have to be a, prepared in a certain sense, knowing that some of it's going to be used, but also be spontaneous and fluid enough to react to the circumstances. So I think that that training served me well going into later. The staff also served me well. I had a willingness to digest the material. But when you mention the honeymooners and many other examples on later, a lot of it I just had stored away from my personal experience or obsessions or affinities or whatever it might be. A lot of it just popped to mind in the moment because I'd been immersed in it for much of my life. Fantastic. Well, that passion, that preparation and your innate ability to have your pulse on popular culture, I think is part of what made you such a joy to listen to. Like so many in your field, radio was a big part of what groomed you. When you were a young kid growing up, I guess you went to Comac High School, what were you listening to on the radio and who were the broadcasters that you remembered from those early days? Well, in sports, I was lucky to grow up in New York when it was a true mecca of sports broadcasting. So I'm listening to Mel Allen and Red Barber and the truly great Marty Glickman who practically invented how to broadcast a basketball game on the radio. And Marv Albert was his protege, literally his protege, his stat man at one time, and then grew into that role as the voice of the Knicks. And Lindsey Nelson did the Mets along with Bob Murphy and Ralph Kiner. And there were many, many others whose styles were interesting and in some sense distinctive. Apart from that, all of us listened to top 40 radio, and that meant something very, very different than what it meant today. So you're listening to Cousin Bruce Morey on tomorrow, Cousin Brucey on WABC, and Dan Ingram, who I thought was the best of all of them. He was so witty and so clever, and he was the tightest voiceover guy ever. You know, certain songs had an instrumental lead-in before the first vocal. Might be nine seconds, might be 29 seconds. Dan Ingram hit it to the millisecond with ever so much as the slightest stumble. 
And I just wondered, how could he possibly do that? It was like when I first listened to Vin Scully, how could I ever be even close to that good? How does he do what he does? And the same thing with, with those guys on the radio, Murray the K was on the radio. The disc jockeys then were gigantic stars. And over on WNEW FM, a different kind of music, then, you know, top 40 was mostly, we thought of as singles, 45s that you could buy for 79 cents or whatever it was in the late 50s and early 60s. Whereas WNEW was a different kind of rock, for lack of a better term, album rock and stuff that wasn't getting necessarily top 40 airplay. And Scott Muni and others had a whole different sensibility, but I listened to them as well. I also listened to Gene Shepard late at night, and he was an incredible storyteller. He would sometimes tell these arresting, can't-miss-a-moment stories that would last for 15 or 20 minutes. But he was so good at spinning a yarn and using that, that theater of the imagination that radio was. And then luckily, after I left Syracuse University... I wound up right away at age 22 at KMOX in St. Louis, which was one of the great radio stations ever, not just 50,000 watts, but it was more important in the St. Louis community and region than any of the television stations were. Jack Buck doing Cardinal games and Bob Hardy, who was the Walter Cronkite of St. Louis and Jack Carney, who was the equivalent of Gene Shepard in St. Louis. They were bigger stars than the anchors of the local news on television. And KMOX had such a huge following. And that whole idea of the theater of the mind that is radio was something that I was geared toward to begin with. And then by osmosis, I got an even better sense of it just being around KMOX and being a small part of that and listening to how these radio masters did it. And I've always felt that it was easier to go from radio to television than to have someone who grew up learning only through television try to master radio because you have to have a greater range of skills on radio. It's a blank canvas and you paint the entire picture. You go to television and roughly speaking, it's not exactly this, but roughly speaking in sports, you're called upon to put a deft and appropriate caption beneath the picture, but not to draw the entire picture. So if you have the broader skill to begin with coming from radio, it's easier to pare it back on television. And I think that a lot of what I did in the interviews on later was a radio sensibility. Obviously, you could see me and the guest, and we also occasionally use clips to bolster what the guest was talking about. But there weren't a great deal of bells and whistles. Uh, it was a, a fairly bare-boned production. And I think that that served to emphasize even more what the person had to say. We didn't assume that you'd become bored after 20 seconds and you'd have to have bells and whistles to distract you or move it along. We assumed, given the hour of the night and the nature of the show, that those who sought it out and became regular viewers knew and appreciated what they were getting. And a lot of it was, was my attempt at... Uh, at the kind of sensibility that I most appreciated in the radio and television broadcasters that I grew up watching and listening to. Fantastic. And you went to KMOX to be the voice of one of the great teams in that's sort of lost in history, I suppose, in a lot of ways, the St. Louis Spirits. 
and we're going to get Steve Jones coming in, see if he can generate a little offense. He's the kind of man who comes off the bench and puts the ball in the bucket for you, Bill, and he replaces Milt Williams. Here he is with a baseline jump, and he hits right away. Yeah, actually, technically, the spirits of St. Louis, because okay. it was an homage to Lindbergh's plane, the spirit of St. Louis. And the logo was one of the greatest logos in the history of sports, with the S's in spirits and St. Louis, and then a swoosh underlining it with a depiction of Lindbergh's plane. So it, it was intended to be a quintessentially St. Louis thing. The logo itself and the uniforms were terrific. We had a lot of talent, most of it undisciplined, lasted for only two years. But A, it was on KMOX. B, it gave my career a tremendous start. Uh, and C, the ABA itself and the spirits in particular were so memorable, so wonderful, and at the same time so crazy and exasperating in some respects that there are still people who are around it who are kind of members, myself included, of a fraternity that those who weren't part of it can never fully understand. But if you want to get kind of the feel of it, I would suggest Terry Pluto's oral history of the league, Loose Balls, mm -hmm. which is one of the best sports books I have ever read and comes as close as anything that I've come across to capturing what the ABA was about. Yeah, I, I used to go to ABA games when the Nets played at the Nassau Coliseum with Dr. Yeah. J and Brian Taylor. And I remember seeing Marvin Barnes and a lot of those great players. Yeah, Marvin Barnes was a phenomenal talent, All-American at Providence, helped them to the Final Four one year, was the second player taken in both the NBA and ABA draft the year he came out of Providence after only Bill Walton, truly one of the all-time, all-time greats. And I'm fully convinced that had Marvin stayed on the straight and narrow, which would have been a very large if in his case, he would have been in 1997 on the stage in Cleveland on the 50th anniversary of the NBA when they selected the 50 greatest players of all time. But as talented as he was, there were demons and a lack of discipline, and he found himself in a lot of regrettable situations. There was never any personal malice. He was very likable and very funny, and we stayed in touch until his death a few years ago. I wrote the foreword to his biography and had contact with him, as I said, almost right until the end. But his life was not what it could have been if he had been uh, personally more disciplined. Mm, fantastic. Uh, yeah, it was just such a... Such a special time in sports. And I, I read that the owners of the, of the Spirit, as I have now, will now properly call them, the Spirits of St. Louis, only about five years ago, the NBA finally bought them out at an incredible number. Yeah, they made not only the greatest business deal in the history of sports, and this is by overwhelming consensus, but one of the greatest deals in the history of American business. And it went like this. At the start of the 75-76 season, the ABA had 10 teams. Some of them were actually thriving, like the Denver Nuggets, the Indiana Pacers always did well. They were a flagship franchise, won three of the nine ABA titles. The San Antonio Spurs were doing okay. The Nets at the Nassau Coliseum weren't doing as well as you would have expected, perhaps, but they had Julius Irving, and that made them viable and attractive. By the time that last season ended, three of the 10 teams had folded and seven remained. The NBA wanted to take in four of those teams, the Nets, the Pacers, the Spurs, and the Nuggets, but how to dispose of the other three without risking all kinds of litigation. 
the Kentucky Colonels were owned by John Y. Brown. They let him buy into the NBA and they dissolved the Colonels. The Virginia Squires were limping along on their last financial legs and deeply in debt, and they were bought out for a few million dollars. And the spirits remained. And their attorney, a guy who's still a friend of mine, was in touch with him just this week, Donald Shupak, had a brilliant idea. He said, look, if we were to get into the NBA, then we would be entitled to our slice of the network television revenue. True? Well, yeah, true. And each team then was receiving only several hundred thousand dollars from the CBS deal. And CBS was all there was. There wasn't an ESPN, there wasn't cable TV, there wasn't an internet, there wasn't a global NBA. It was a modest thing. He said, tell you what, we'll take one seventh of the television cut of the four teams that are going to get in. One seventh of that. But then he put in a very important clause in perpetuity. So now by the 80s with Bird and Magic and Dr. J is now in Philadelphia, the NBA is picking up steam. By the 90s with Jordan and all the other stars and the dream team in Barcelona, it's exploding. And those television revenues increased exponentially. And now they included the globe. They included Europe and China and all points that no one ever thought about in 1976. And so without having any payroll at all, no overhead, just walking to the mailbox and picking up the check, the Silna brothers, Ozzie and Dan Silna, who were the primary owners, pocketed hundreds of millions of dollars until finally the NBA realizing that in perpetuity meant maybe someday we'll be getting television rights from Saturn. We better close this thing out. And I think the Silnas, because one of them, Ozzy, had passed away for estate reasons, they wanted to close it out as well. And I think the final buyout was half a billion. So in combination with what they had collected over the years, it was more than a billion dollars for a team that they spent $3 million to acquire. So they operated at a loss for two years and then they rolled in dough in perpetuity. Great story, amazing story. So there's so much ground to cover. I don't wanna dwell in any one area. Your careers are so remarkable. I'd love to jump to October 4, 1980. There were certain names in American sports, television and television history in general that we don't want to ever forget. And one of those names who I know was very instrumental in your career was Don Omeyer. I'd love to hear about Don and your recollections of that very first game that you called. I think it was the Yanks and the Tigers for Don Omeyer and NBC. Yeah, that was one of the first baseball games I did. But my first assignments for them were a mixture of things. I did some power lifting in China in Beijing, which was still known as Peking to, uh, to many Americans. It was in preparation for the 1980 Moscow Olympics, which were to have been on NBC, and they were taking people and getting them familiar with various sports. And in my case, I was a newcomer, so I would have worked some of the more obscure Olympic sports, and then it all fell through when the Americans boycotted it. So there was no American TV of the Olympics, but Sports World was NBC's answer to Wide World of Sports on ABC, kind of an anthology sports series. So I did a 
a motley collection of events for Sports World. I also did some basketball and football, NFL games, play-by-play in 1980. But you're right that the baseball games, I did one between the Red Sox and the Angels in June of 1980 in Anaheim uh, with Tim McCarver and did another with Tim in Cincinnati about a month after that. But the big one was October 4th, 1980, because the Yankees were playing the Tigers and the Yankees' magic number was one. And it was actually one on Friday night when they played a doubleheader against the Tigers, who are a woeful team, and somehow the Tigers won both games. Otherwise, the game on Saturday would have meant nothing. And it still was going to go to a very small audience. But the primary game, which was Montreal and the Phillies, and the Phillies wound up clinching the division that night, but it was delayed four hours by rain. So ours was supposed to be the backup game. And all of a sudden, we're on to the entire country. We being me and Bobby Valentine, who was then the Texas Rangers manager, but was available since the Rangers season was over. And so he's in the booth with me. And the game turned out to be a terrific game. And Reggie Jackson hit an upper deck home run that was decisive. Goose Gossage nailed it down for the save in the ninth inning. And the game goes to the entire country. And outside St. Louis, I think most people were probably saying, who the hell is this kid? We don't recognize his voice. And when he comes on camera, he looks like he's 15 years old. But I guess because of my baseball knowledge, and it was lucky for me that the game involved the Yankees and was at Yankee Stadium. So I was steeped in a lot of the history and meaning of that. We did pretty well on the broadcast and it was well received. And Don Omar decided after that, that I would become a permanent part of NBC's baseball coverage, which was one of the pivotal uh, decisions in my career. There's a story concerning me and Don right around that time, after I'd been at NBC only a short amount of time, might've been before that broadcast in October, but it was in the same time frame. He calls me into his office and he says, you know, we really like your work and we think you have a terrific future here, but let me ask you something. How old are you? And I said, I'm 27. He said, God damn it. You look like you're 14. How much older do you think you would look if you grew a beard? And he was serious. This was his big brainstorm. And I said, well, five years at least. And he perked up. He said, five years, really? I said, yeah, because that's how long it would take to grow it. Today from Tiger Stadium in Detroit, it's the White Sox and the Tigers on the NBC Game of the Week. So that was the that was the end of that fine idea. And somehow somehow I muddled through. But guys like Omar and then later on, I know Dick Ebersole was also very instrumental in your career. And I know ABC back in the day had Rune Arledge. You know, Mm -hmm. we don't really have those characters anymore who were such giants and such visionaries. And certainly Omar and Ebersole were, you know, great to you. Yeah. And they were both protégés of Rune Arledge, the Olympics and Monday Night Football and that whole era in television sports. Mike Weissman is another who was instrumental in my career, one of the best producers you could ever work with. And they were all bigger than life characters. They were stars in their own right. They were presences. You knew when they were in the room that there was a certain charisma. And also with all of them, volatility. Not so much Mike. Mike uh, always was amiable and humorous. But Don and Dick, 
could get annoyed and you didn't want to cross them because they'd blow up, but then it would end. It would end, you know, they could, they could throw a fit in the control room when something didn't go right. And then 30 seconds later, it was all forgotten. And there was a certain electricity and dynamism about covering sports in that atmosphere. Plus we had so many big events that you were always doing things that most of the nation was interested in. And the television landscape was so much different then. When it was a big event, you weren't going to VCR or DVR it. You weren't going to stream it. You weren't going to catch a zillion highlights later. You had to be in place for that big event, for the first pitch, the kickoff, the tip-off, whatever it might have been. And that that gave it a, another dimension that might be missing to some extent now. Yeah, no, I, th- I think you're right. I think, you know, sports is the last bastion, really, of things that some of us still like to watch live. But that, yeah, whole, that, right. whole, that whole era has disappeared. So you work with some incredible partners, uh, Sal Bando for a bit, and then, and very memorable to me, Tony Kubek and then Joe Morgan and Bob Eucher. It must be some incredible memories, and, and I'm sure Joe Morgan memories flooded to you with his very recent passing. Yeah, and there's so much people pointed out to me, so much stuff floating around on YouTube now. And there are games that I did with Joe and Bob, or in some cases, just Joe Morgan. And I've listened to little bits and pieces of it. I can't hang in for the whole game. It's a game I know the outcome of anyway. And in some cases, remember specifically what we said and what the replays were sort of imprinted somewhere in your memory bank when you prepared that much for it. And it's so much different than when you just watch a game now, even if you watch every pitch or every play. If you've actually called it and you've done all the preparation, it's almost, well, you have, you've lived it. And so it all kind of comes back when they show archival games on the MLB network or the NBA network or when something pops up on YouTube, but especially so with Joe Morgan's passing. He was such a great player. I think recognized as a great player in his time, but now the modern analytics are even more favorable to him. And you realize that he was at his best, at the peak of his career. He was probably the greatest second baseman of the second half of the 20th century. And I enjoyed working with him. I respected him and liked him as a person. And he's part of that unfortunate run of Hall of Fame players, all of whom were iconic in their own way, who passed away this year, starting with Al Kaline in April, and then just in a cluster of six weeks or so, Tom Seaver and Lou Brock, and Bob Gibson, and Joe Morgan, um, mm. and Whitey Ford. Yeah. So, and I, I've been called upon because I knew them all and either broadcast their games or interviewed them all. I've been called upon to reflect about them. And I think when moments like this happen, it takes you back simultaneously. It takes you back to your youth or a younger stage of your life, but it also reminds you of your own mortality. And when we think about sports, They're not the most important thing if you're just talking about the outcome of any given game. But they're one of the things, music and other aspects of pop culture can also be part of it, one of the things by which we mark time. And I think baseball especially so, it's just a different nature to the game and the way people follow it, at least in my generation. And so when you hear about Al Kaline, who I did not know that well, but I knew him or you experience the death of someone like Joe Morgan, it's not just something you note from a distance. There's a personal connection there. 
And even if you weren't lucky enough to be someone like me who knew them and was closely involved, even if you were just a fan, I remember hearing from thousands of people that I didn't know. This is back when people wrote letters, when everything wasn't emails or Twitter or whatever. I received close to 10,000 letters in the aftermath of Mickey Mantle's death when I did the eulogy at his funeral. And although people had different recollections, the abiding theme was this. This was part of my life. This was part of my childhood. And I feel something I can't quite explain. Knowing that Mickey Mantle, a man I never met, is gone, I feel a loss in my life. And that same feeling is coming. I hope it's a long way off. But it's coming when Hank Aaron's gone. It's coming when Willie Mays is gone. It came tragically and much too early for a lot of people when Kobe Bryant died in the helicopter crash. A lot of sports fandom is is mindless and obsessive, especially today with all the social media and everything. But a lot of it, especially I think in, in previous generations, and I hope to some extent in this one, a lot of it has to do with real emotional connections. It has to do with fondness and memories that aren't that aren't crazy. They're they're human. And and that I think is the best part of sports. And when I've been able, I've tried to capture that in my broadcasts. I don't think you can ever do it perfectly, but I've always been mindful of that. Well you sure have. And if you know if we had a, a Mount Rushmore for sports board broadcasting you know, in my mind, it would be Vince Scully, Jack Buck, Jim McKay, and you. And well, that's that's great company. I'm flattered by that. And growing up, you mentioned Sports World, which of course was NBC's attempt to emulate Wide World of Sports, which was the iconic, you know, show that we watched as kids. Yep. It, it was you'd never missed a week. You know, we all remember things like seeing Vasily Alexiev, you know, the Soviet weightlifter. I, who I met once. I Did actually you? met him. Yeah, Did he you? Was at, he was at that powerlifting thing, which otherwise would have been completely uh, uh, forgettable. It was actually December of 1979. Um, believe it or not, I was miscast. I actually did two weightlifting things. One was powerlifting <laughs> in, in 1979, and any of these competitors could have lifted me up with one hand. But that was in 1979. It was actually my first assignment for uh, for NBC in Tokyo December 79 Mini Sama Kanishiwa Watashiwa Bob Costas My partner was a guy named Larry Pacifico who had won seven or eight world powerlifting championships and Vasily Alexiev was there and oh my God. to Pacifico Alexiev was as if a baseball player had met Babe Ruth or Willie Mays he was a god and then I did the one that I mentioned earlier about a year later in 1980, which was Olympic powerlifting. Fantastic. And I remember that was the first time I remember seeing the Globetrotters on Wide World of Sports with Meadowlark sure. Lemon and Curly Neal and Geese Osby and Goose Tatum. What I loved about Jim McKay, as I remember so fondly as a boy, is he went beyond sports and he talked about issues that transcended sport and had a wonderful way of putting things in context. And it was really a reflective mirror of whatever mm-hmm. was happening in pop culture, in the political culture, the broader broader world at a moment in time. And that's something, Bob, that you have done your entire career. When I was going through all of our, our crack great minds research team, uh, not quite as together as your team at later, but you know, I said, boy, you know, 
Bob's career is a mirror of the last 40 plus years. Well, maybe not completely, but to some extent, a lot of that is just my good fortune of having been in the right place at the right time so often. And Dick Ebersol creating the later program for me, which in some respects is the thing I'm most proud of in my career. I was lucky enough to be there. And I hope that I brought that sensibility, which we've discussed earlier, that I brought that to it. Jim McKay told me once about the Olympics. Of course, it's a sports event, but it's more than that. It's an international and cultural panorama. It's a travel log, the host city, the host nation, the backgrounds and circumstances of competitors who come from far-flung places. And, you know, as the years went by, the Olympic formats became more constricting and you were less able to take those trips down the side streets. In fact, McKay told me that once. He said, when I'm driving down a big thoroughfare, something in me wants to know what's happening down that side street, because often the most interesting stories are found there. And Jimmy Breslin, the great columnist, um, late columnist for mm -hmm. New York newspapers, who sometimes turned his attentions to sports, he said, the best stories are often found in the loser's locker room. You know, I'm not trying to make it too highfalutin, sports is sports, but if there wasn't a human element to it, if there wasn't a texture to it that included storytelling and humor and personal recollections, and as McKay put it, the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat, if you didn't have all of that, then all you have is bare bone statistics and outcomes. And I think too much of modern sports coverage is devoted to that. I like sabermetrics. I was reading Bill James, who was the father of it. I was reading him in the early 1980s in St. Louis and putting him on the air on KMOX. And I think I was probably the first person to ever mention his name and mention sabermetrics on network television. But now every ball off the bat, we have to know its exit velocity. We have to know its launch angle. We have to know every last bit of statistical minutia. How did Vin Scully and Jack Buck and Red Barber ever get by without any of that and still be so compelling and so listenable because they were great broadcasters, because they were storytellers, because there was an element of humanity there that you cannot quantify, but you appreciate it when you hear it and when you see it. Yeah, one of my great joys in life was I was very close to Bud Greenspan. My most treasured memory in my career was in 92 in Barcelona. My birthday happens to be over the summer and I was having breakfast with Bud and Frank DeFord stopped by and sat with us. And it happened to have been August 6th, my birthday. And Bud's ability to do that and to tell those stories, I thought was second to none. Bud was fantastic. He was geared toward the Olympics. What he did over the years is part of the Olympic archive. It's part of Olympic history. He didn't delve into things journalistically all that much. He wasn't interested in the controversies and the issues, and those are an important part of the coverage. But for what he did on its own terms, he was wonderful. Yeah, he had a great line. He would say, the media is interested in the 10% that's bad. They spend 90% on blowing the line. He said they would spend 90% of their time 
on the 10% that's bad. I choose to spend 100% of my time on the 90% that's good. And he did see things through rose-colored glasses, and he never, mm-hmm. mind, he never minded when people said that about him. Yeah, that was his approach. And as I said, on its own terms, he did it magnificently. My own philosophy is this, and I was in a different role than a documentarian, and there are obviously differences among documentarians. Ken Burns, a different kind of documentarian than, than Bud Greenspan was. But for lack of a better explanation, my operating principle was that a really good broadcast, or over time, a collection of broadcasts, should be like a really good issue of Sports Illustrated. It has some celebration of the beauty and the drama of sports. It has human interest. It has insight from coaches and scouts or or statistical insight. It has elements of history. It should have elements of humor and quirky stuff. But also, in proportion, it should have journalism and commentary. Not every game or every event calls for that. And the journalism and commentary should not be at the expense of the action and the drama itself. But there are always little windows where that can be worked in and should be worked in, in my view. And over time, maybe not every broadcast, but over time, you should be able to step back from that canvas, if that's not too uh, lofty a description, step back from it and see not just the primary colors, but all the shadings that give it texture. And using something you did as a manifestation of that, I watched the interview that you did with Mickey Mantle shortly after he was uh, released from the Betty Ford Clinic fighting alcoholism and Mm -hmm. his son Billy had just passed away. And you talked with Mickey about role model versus hero. Yeah. And I'd love to get your take on that, both in context with your conversation with Mickey, but where we are today in America, it's gotten so complex. I remember when Barkley years ago said, you know, I'm not a role model. And I thought, well, if kids are going and buying your jersey and putting it on and trying to be like you on the playground, whether you like it or not, you are a role model. Well, within reason. I've always felt this way. If someone actually is admirable enough, none of us are perfect, but if someone is admirable enough or certain aspects of their public life or their personal qualities are worthy of emulation, that's great. But what what I require of an athlete or would hope for from an athlete is that he or she performs with integrity, gives an honest effort, lets us see the results of their athletic excellence and keeps their name out of the police blotter and doesn't do anything so obnoxious that it gets in the way of my enjoying the event. Now, if there's a bonus, and there are with many people, if it's Arthur Ashe or in a more modest way, just by the integrity of showing up every day, it's Cal Ripken or whomever it may be, you can make a long list of people who have admirable personal qualities, that's a bonus. But I I can enjoy sports without looking to it uh, for social guidance. In fact, and maybe this is odd about me, and there are many things that are odd about me, 
when I was a kid and my friends and I would go to Yankee Stadium, some of them wanted to wait by the players' parking lot and watch the players come out of the parking lot from their cars and walk into Yankee Stadium in their street clothes. And I did that once. And to me, it broke a wall that I didn't want to break through. I mean, I knew that these people went home, even when I was nine or 10 years old, I wasn't that crazy. I knew they went home. I knew they had families and whatnot, but I didn't really want to see Mickey Mantle in his blue slacks and his white cashmere sweater. I can still see him walking in. It was opening day in 1966. I didn't want to see that. I wanted to see him in my mind's eye in a pinstripe uniform wearing number seven. And so I think it's entirely possible that a kid can have a baseball hero or a basketball hero and not and not be so foolish as to think that that person should provide guidance for them in their life. As I said, if there's some element beyond that, well, that's a bonus. That's icing on the cake. And the point that I tried to make to Mickey was he was so hard on himself and he actually received this point in the last year of his life. He really did understand that difference between a role model and a hero. Mickey Mantle was a legitimate baseball hero. There were also admirable or appealing things about him as a person, but that's a more complicated story because he was flawed and ultimately some element of that turned out to be self-destructive and heartbreaking. So he was a complex person who had, who had appealing qualities, uh, but as a baseball player, he was a flat-out hero, not just because he was great, but because his greatness was compromised by injuries. And so there was always an element of what might have been about him. And that's, you know, that's, that's part of, part of the, the, the story of in, in great novels and, and in works of art that are, are far beyond anything that sports provides or that a sports broadcaster can provide but elements of poignancy and what might've been and the star-crossed hero who sometimes comes through but has regrets and all that kind of stuff. I mean, there's a Roy Hobbs, the natural element to Mickey Mantle's career. In fact, a lot of people thought when Bernard Malamud wrote the book, which really was before Mantle flowered as a great, great player, but when they subsequently read The Natural and when they saw Barry Levinson's film uh, starring Robert Redford, what came to mind for a lot of people was Mickey Mantle. So if Mickey Mantle wasn't a baseball hero, I'd like you to show me one. Mickey Mantle is now 62 years old. That alone is surprising to him. You see, for two generations, every male member of his family died young, including his father, the Oklahoma lead miner who taught Mickey to switch hit at the age of four, pitching to the little boy every day after returning home from the mines. For years, Mantle has joked, if I'd known I was going to live this long, I would have taken better care of myself. The line always got a laugh, but shortly after New Year's, the announcement came. Mickey Mantle had checked into the Betty Ford Clinic seeking treatment for alcoholism. Then, just days after he returned home, his son Billy died of a heart attack at the age of 36. Even after Billy's death, Mickey insisted that we go ahead with this interview. This is a story Mickey Mantle wanted to tell. 1969, when I retired, uh, I didn't feel like that I had given it all I had, or some, I, I felt like something was missing. And uh, by that time, I was probably an alcoholic and didn't know it. The last 10 years, 
uh, it, it got pretty bad. I mean, I, I got so bad, I, I couldn't even, I, people would tell me I did things, you know, and I couldn't remember. Uh, I did things I had no idea I was doing. When you got to Betty Ford Clinic, I'm told that you received more letters than anyone who's ever been at Betty Ford. And when you consider some of the famous names who've gone in and checked out, that's kind of remarkable. I had teachers uh, have their class uh, little kids write me letters, you know. Uh, third and fourth graders would write a letter, you know, say, Mickey, uh, we're glad you went out there, you know, and I didn't realize it. I didn't, I really didn't realize uh, until I started getting those letters what I did mean to some people. So you mentioned later as one of the great, one of many proud moments that you look back on fondly. I'd love to just throw out some of the names of some of the guests that you had. Sure. And, and I know you did, I think it was, a tour de force with Mel Brooks. Yeah, we had four shows a week. There was no Friday show because uh, Friday night videos was still a thing. So we were on Monday through Thursday and we gave an entire week over to Mel Brooks. We had done doubles with a lot of uh, worthwhile guests and in a few cases, triples. We did a triple with Paul McCartney uh, as one example, but we never did an entire week with anyone until Mel Brooks showed up. We had intended to do a double and he was just on such a roll and he was so fantastically funny and interesting. We just said, let's just keep on going. So we did. Fantastic. And Madeline Kahn. And we're back with Madeline Kahn and during the commercial, a technical problem arose. Yes, they came dashing toward me to hide this and I insist on telling you uh, that this is a wire, uh, which you have seen now for several minutes before and when you returned it wouldn't be there and you'd think they've shaved under her arms or something <laughs> she neglected to do before coming on i insist on telling you that this is a wire and that now it will not be seen and before it was seen and now it's not seen thank you i will not <laughs> it was they uh a lovely vignette when you talk about mel brooks madeline khan was one of the stars that he that he was most fond of and used to wonderful effect. She she was a great guest because she had a great sense of herself and could laugh at herself, could play a role, could play the uh, the desirable young seductress but at the same time project a certain kind of strength and self-assurance. I mean, Madeline Kahn was no bimbo, you know, and she was, she was just very endearing. I'd never met her until she sat down to talk with us. And, and I found her to be both kind of playful, but at the same time, within the same interview, reflective. Yeah, I, I thought it was a fantastic interview. And you did separately um, Stephen Stills and David Crosby. Yep, and Graham Nash. Uh, we we never, but we got three of the four. Okay. Um, and and at least two of them. Stills and Crosby are knocking around on YouTube, uh, but I don't think Graham Nash has surfaced yet. Yeah, I did not find that one. But you're clearly a huge music fan. Yeah, and you know, someone asked me a couple of years ago, could you do later now if someone wanted to make that kind of time available in that format? available. Could you do it? And my answer is I could do it professionally, but I couldn't do it nearly as well and with nearly the level of personal connection 
that I did because then, because I, when I started, I was in my late thirties. And by the time we finished, I was in my early forties. And I regret, as I said, I regret walking away from it when I did. Uh, I wish I had stayed. Uh, we did it for five and a half, six years. I wish I had stayed, let's say for 10, but eventually I would have had to have left. If it was today, could I interview Ed Sheeran? Sure, I could. I right. could be prepared and I could do a professional job. But would I have the same automatic affinity as when I sat down with Carol King or Smokey Robinson or Bruce Springsteen or Bob Seeger? Of course not. Right. Of course not. Or Darlene Love. Of course not. Yeah. And uh, true that you were offered a slot after Letterman on national TV. Yeah, when David went from NBC to CBS after Jay Leno got The Tonight Show, part of his deal was that he controlled the hour after his show on CBS. And he offered it to me, uh, which was very, very tempting. And in conjunction with it, CBS also offered me a spot on 60 Minutes. And if it had been a different time in my life, I definitely would have done it. But my kids were very young, was living in St. Louis and commuting to New York. NBC had the Olympics. They, the NBA on NBC was a big deal then and getting bigger. A year later, they'd reacquire baseball. And I just thought, well, you can't have a better combination of sports circumstances. And one big element in my decision was this. With the ages of my kids, I was able to take them with me. My son Keith went to his first NBA finals with me when he was five years old in 1991. You can take a young boy or girl to the NBA finals or to the Olympics or to have them meet Ozzie Smith or Michael Jordan, and it resonates with them. You can't say to a seven-year-old kid, daddy will be back on Tuesday, but I'm going to interview the secretary of state. You know, it just doesn't right. mean the same thing. Right. I, I couldn't, I could, I could have done it, but I couldn't turn my back on the sports part because of, of my kids. And also because of my own feeling, my loyalty to NBC and Dick Ebersol, and the fact that we had such excellent um, sports properties. But I, I was sorely tempted to take the CBS and David Letterman offer. And it had it come at a different time, I would have. Well, later is magic. And I'm glad there's so much of it that we can still watch on YouTube. It was uh, just a joy to watch them all. So thank I, you. I, so I, you're welcome. So I'd be remiss not to ask you about uh, reflections on your many, many times behind the Olympic desk. I was lucky in my career. We mentioned Bud earlier and I got to go to a Lillehammer and Barcelona and a number of other games. And I always felt there was a real specialness about the Olympics and about Olympic athletes. You wouldn't know this, but when I was a kid, when I was 23, uh, and this is how I met Mike Dyer, who was kind enough to connect me to Pam in your office and make this happen. When Mike was running the St. Louis Sports Committee, I was running the New York City Sports Commission. Our original goal was to bring the Olympics to New York. It's never been here, as you know. And when Atlanta got it and Billy Payne and his group, Charlie Battle, did such a great job with the bid, I looked around and said, is there anything else that might be worth bidding on? And we actually bid on and won the 98 Goodwill Games, which you might recall. 
Yes. And I got to go to St. Petersburg for that in 94. And um, we actually competed against St. Louis and Mike for the rights to that uh, 98 Goodwill Games. Did you feel that specialness of Olympic athletes and everything that it meant in a different way than pro sports? Yes. And there are so many aspects to it. We can't get into all of them. But one of the keys, and I mentioned this frequently on the Olympics, if you lose the World Series, either the Rays or Dodgers are going to lose the World Series. They'll be back in spring training next year. You lose the heavyweight title. You could get a rematch and it could come fairly quickly. But for Olympic athletes, it's once every four years. And for some, it's once in a lifetime. At every Olympic Games, standards are reset. Numbers and figures more impressive than those that came before. Performances that won't soon be forgotten. His Olympic victories have been both decisive and stylish. Now he races for a feat unprecedented, becoming the first ever to twice sweep the sprints. No one has ever turned two laps of the track more exquisitely. Tonight, he runs to sleekly advance his legacy. This group aims for a goal none before them have grasped, guided by a coach familiar with the extraordinary. And in events that demand speed and style, precision and daring, they look to reach new heights. Gold medals are won with low times, high marks, big plays by those who perform best on the biggest stage at the games of the 30th Olympiad. You think about the Super Bowl. The Super Bowl is the biggest single sports event on American television, but it's only bigger by degree than the conference championship, which is only bigger by degree than a Sunday night game during the regular season. Peyton Manning wants to get to the Super Bowl. Tom Brady wants to get to the Super Bowl. But it's not as if they're obscure until they get to the Super Bowl. But for an Olympic athlete, think about it. How much of Michael Phelps, for all of his Olympic glory, did we watch, we being 99% of the American public, during non-Olympic years? He's obviously training. There's obviously other national and international competitions. But it enlarges exponentially when you get to the Olympics. And that's even true for Michael Phelps or Allison Felix or Usain Bolt or Simone Biles. Think of what it is for a platform diver from Peru or a distance runner from Kenya. All of a sudden, they go from training and all that discipline and all that heart and soul in relative obscurity, and then they stand on the biggest stage in all of sports, very often for competitions that last barely more than the blink of an eye. All those years of sweat and toil, and it comes down to multiple seconds in the pool, or 10 seconds or less in a sprint, something like that. I think that, give, that gives it an added element of drama and urgency. And that's when you're talking about the top competitors who have the chance to win a medal. I also always pointed this out at the opening ceremony. At a Summer Olympics, there's more than 10,000 athletes from some 200 countries. The vast, vast majority of them arrive with no reasonable shot 
at a medal. They're only trying to post a personal best and test themselves against the world's best. So for them, the biggest moment really is the opening ceremony itself. When they march into the stadium alongside the dream team, alongside the best in the world in whatever sport and representing their country and under their country's flag. And I think that that resonates. Somebody's watching in Omaha or Timbuktu, that resonates. They don't even have to remember the names of all those athletes. How could you possibly? I couldn't, and I was the, the host of it. But you see their faces, and you see the cultural panorama, and you recognize that this is different for all the hypocrisy and all the issues and contradictions that are also part of it. This is different, and in its best moment, glorious in a way that nothing else in sports is. I couldn't agree more. So just to wrap up, it was uh, thrilled a couple of years ago to hear you on, yes, doing some Yankee games. And I know that that was just a one-off and you're doing stuff with MLB and I guess doing some stuff with CNN. What else is out there, Bob? You're still a young guy and you've completely still got your fastball. Are there things that are in your mind that you think I'd still like to do? X or Y, and and yeah. what might that be? Yeah, that yes thing with the Yankees was uh, a doubleheader against the Red Sox, and uh, I had done the game the night before on Friday night uh, for the MLB Network, so I was there, and uh, Michael Kay was having some throat difficulties, uh, and I stepped in, and I'd known David Cohn for a long time, and Paul O'Neill was part of it, so it was you know it was an easy fit, and uh, it turned out to be very well received. But like you said, it was a one-off. I'd like to continue to be involved in baseball with the MLB network. Um, the contributor thing at, at CNN is uh, doesn't involve much heavy lifting, and sometimes I can contribute an observation or two uh, that's worthwhile. And there is something else on the horizon next year, which I'm not going to mention. It would have started this year, uh, but I didn't want to debut a new program under COVID circumstances. It's one thing for existing programs to pivot and do things virtually, the audience understands, but I don't think you want to introduce a program uh, under less than optimal conditions. So I have my fingers crossed that uh, we'll be able to do that uh, sometime in 2021. Fantastic. Well, Bob, thanks so much for doing this. It was an absolute joy to talk to you. You're, you're beyond kind. And um, if people haven't figured this out already, these podcasts, and I've done quite a few over time. Uh, I tend to view it as an opportunity to open up a little bit more. Uh, we broadcasters have a clock in our head. And I know if you say to me, give me 30 seconds, I'm going to give you 29.5. I can, I can do that. And I can kind of structure everything to fit what's called for. But podcasts are liberating. So I hope I didn't take advantage too much Not of the lack of, of a clock really ticking, ticking, ticking uh, with every with every moment or having to work around action on a field. This I always view these, especially with someone like you who has an appreciation and is well-informed and is asking good questions. So I take it that your audience has interests similar to yours, that they might want to hear a little bit more than the formats of most television these days allows. So I, I took advantage of that opportunity. I hope I didn't uh, abuse it. Uh, you were great. Thanks so much. And nice, uh, every, Thank every, you very much. Stay healthy and every continued success. 